0: So I've been married for a little over a month now, and uh, which means I'm yeah, it's pretty fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, which means I'm pretty good at this marriage thing. So I have a marriage lesson for you guys today. Just kidding. Um, still very much learning. <laughs> uh, but a question that Olivia and I, as my wife, um, ask each other frequently is, "How's your heart?" So you should do this because we're marriage experts. Um, <laughs> but this is a question I try to ask Olivia often. Um, how is your heart in regards to your faith? And she asked me the same thing. And recently I've pondered how to answer this question with assuring confidence and not just be able to go off of, I'm having a good day. Um, if, if I'm just feeling good, if I feel at peace, or if I, if I have some cool things on the horizon to look forward to, um, if I'm just feeling good. I'm, I've recently been trying to ponder what it means to like, actually respond my faith is good. My faith is fervent and true, and you know I feel like I'm surrendered to God. Like, I can remember times like the day I decided to repent and believe, uh, the day I got baptized, the, the, day, the time where God's love became so real to me. Um, and like in those moments, it felt so evidently clear that I could answer that question and say, really good, my faith is really good. And then I would go about regular life after these things would happen. I would, you know, I would be pouring out my heart in worship or I'd go listen to a good sermon or I'd preach or I'd go be serving and, and the, the, my faith would be good. I would feel good about where I was with faith. And then I would jump back into this cycle of life and it would just be gone. That, the fire would be gone, the, the fervency, um, what, you know, the feeling that everything I do, I, I wanted to pursue God and honor God. It just would like not be necessarily uh, like just cut out of my life or or just um, like totally choked out but for some reason I would get distracted and this fervency would leave me. But that's not how it ought to be. You know, like eating and work and entertainment and fellowshipping with friends and going to the mountains and all these things, you know, life, the things that you do in life are things we ought to do, or else we'd just be bored. And so all these things that are squelching my faith, all these things that are distracting me from being a fervent believer, they shouldn't be the things that are pushing me away from having a fervent faith for Christ. Yet they are the very things that are drawing me away from this radical, self-denying faith in God. And this actually regularly happens to me, and I think a lot of people right here, right here in church. We come and hear an amazing sermon. Um, We come and pour our hearts out in worship. We come in fellowship with other believers, and then as soon as we walk out the door, we're driving out out of the parking lot. It's gone. The eternal things that we have on in mind, or the 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 truth that we just heard, or um, the conviction that God um, you know spoke over us. It's just gone. So when you come to church or community group and get amped for Jesus. It's a good feeling, right? Maybe you haven't experienced it, or maybe you don't claim to be a Christian, and this, you know, this kind of thing can happen in all sorts of things. There are days when you're super amped about your job, or super amped about a group of friends, or you super love your, your spouse or the pers- your, your, your life partner, and, and then all of a sudden something just comes and squelches that out. Now, this is about our faith in Christ, and I believe that the true fulfillment of all those things is in what we're going to talk to today. But we're talking about what takes this aliveness away from him. What would your life be like if you could always be thinking with these eternal things in mind? What would your life be like if the realities that we're reminded of week to week here on a Sunday were always on our minds in the perspective of our day-to-day lives? What would it be like if you were just able to go about your day and not worry about tomorrow, not worry about the future, not worry about if you're going to eat or drink or if you're going to make money or if you're, or if you're going to get to go on another vacation, if you're going to, get to go, going to get to go up to the mountains again, or if your car is going to break down? What would life be like if you could go about not worrying about these things, not letting the things of, about, things of life squelch your faith for God? I think it would be pretty awesome. <laughs> and so today we're going to explore why we must fight to maintain faith in God, the fight for faith. And so we're going to be in uh, Luke still. Um, we're wrapping up uh, at the end of, a, of a, a previous series on community um, today, and we're going to start a new series this week, but we're still in Luke. Um, and what we're about to read is in Luke chapter 17. Um, we're going to be in Luke 17, 20, versus Luke 18:8. 8. It seems like a big, you know, large passage of Scripture, um, but it's going to be awesome. And where we're about to read is where Jesus is talking to his disciples and some Pharisees, which were the religious elite of the time, the me and Caleb's. <laughs> Just kidding, we're not like the Pharisees. <laughs> um, but ta- he's talking to them about the coming of the kingdom, um, which in this day is, is a, this is a day where God's kingdom, his eternal realities like heaven um, and, and, his, and his earth, the physical realities come become one. God's spiritual realm and the physical realm become one. And his rule is established in all things. And to give some context, the Pharisees are going to ask him a question, asking him a question of when the kingdom is going to come. And it's uh, not exactly the way that they're interpreting it is, is not the way that it is. Um, they're, they're going to be asking in, they're asking in a political sense, in a, in a sense of when, when are you going to take over um, our government, our society, our rule. And um, we're going to see that God's picture of the coming of kingdom coming of his kingdom is much different than anything that the Pharisees or that we could conjure up. And so, read with me. Oh. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, Here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. And so, he tells them that the kingdom of God, like I was just saying, is not something that you will be able to keep track of. Um, there's not going to be, a, you, know, you know, like a, the sun's not going to be in a specific place or it's not going to be a certain temperature. Or there's no app you can download to track when the kingdom of God is going to be coming. And he also tells them that it's right there with them. He says that the kingdom of God is in your midst. And so this, is this crazy, mysterious, but cool reality of God's kingdom is not yet here, but it already is because Jesus started the ushering it in when he first came. And so he's explaining an eternal reality that we can't really fully grasp, but he's trying to explain to them that this is not a political thing that's going to happen for you guys. And then he goes on to tell them what the days are going to be like when he returns again. So he says, Then he told the disciples, The days are coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you won't see it. They will say, Do you see there or see here? Don't follow or run after them. For as the lightning flashes from horizon to horizon and lights up the sky, so the Son of Man will be in his day. But first, it is necessary that he suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And so now he's talking directly to his disciples. These are his people that follow him, um, the guys that he's kind of training up to be, um, to to do the work that he does. And he's instructing instructing them that the last days aren't going to be small. The days when Jesus does return again, that's not going to be like a little thing. Compared to his first coming, when he came like a baby, he came in as a baby, he came into this world. When he comes again, it's not going to be meek and small and, and, and peaceful. It's going to be huge, like, like um, the difference between a chihuahua walking in here or a rhinoceros walking in here. It's going to be very, very different and very, very blatant. He says, "Lightning as lightning flashes from horizon to horizon, See, I've only lived in Colorado for uh, seven months, eight months now. And so I haven't experienced if if this happens here or not. And so don't get offended. Um, But in the Midwest where I grew up, thunderstorms are like real and scary and loud. And you think your house is going to fall down when it happens. Like 20 times a year that happens. And so that's what he's saying is that, that, you know, his coming is going to be like that. Boom, crack, Flat! like nobody is going to miss it. It's going to be very clear when Jesus comes back. So the second return of Jesus is not going to be quiet or secret. When he comes, you'll know. So he's saying, don't bother trying to figure it out. Don't bother, even if there are signs of end times, giving them any thought, because when he gets here, you're going to know when, he, when he's coming. What is really the important thing is not predicting or trying to figure out when he gets here, but being ready when he does. Those saying, see here or see there, will be terribly wrong, and Jesus' return will, be, will just not be missed by anyone. So in the same vein as before, it's not going to be observable or political. What goes on in the world isn't going to tell us he's returning. When he's returning, you're going to know. I, I think I've said that enough. I just make sure you guys know that you're going to know when Jesus returns. It's not going to be quiet. So don't go looking for signs of God in, in the news or in, in, in what you know, Joe Biden is doing or what, what's happening around the world. He goes on and says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People went on eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. It will be the same as it was in the days of Lot. People went on eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building, but on the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be like that on the day the Son, of the, Ma- the Son of Man is revealed. And so he references now to what it will be like when he returns again, what the atmosphere will be like, the vibe, you know, what, is, what it's going to feel like, what everybody's going to be doing. And he references to the days of Noah. He you know, every, you know the, no, the story of Noah is God commissioned this man to build a huge boat to collect two animals of every kind and brought his family because... God was going to flood the earth because everybody else was wicked and turned against him. And he mentions mentions Lot in the same vein. The wickedness, just a city of of wickedness and a city of of people that don't honor God, and so God destroys the city. But notice, in this passage, he doesn't even mention why these, these things happened, why the end times happened. You know, we know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that it was bad. The society was not one that was turned towards God. We know that the society in the times of Noah, the world in the times of Noah wasn't good, and so God sent a flood and restarted. But notice he doesn't even mention that. He mentions, he says that they went on eating, drinking, and marrying, and being given in marriage, and drinking, and buying, and selling, and planting, and building. He talks about the minutia of life. None of them inherently sinful things. In fact, all, you know, most of the world does these things, and it's, you know, essential to do these things. And so when he comes back, the vibe is going to be business as usual, life as usual. The vibe will be what's going on right now. And so it could happen any second. He goes on On that day, a man on the housetop whose belongings are in the house must not come down to get them. Likewise, the man who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two will be in one bed, one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding grain together, one will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked him. And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there also the vultures will be gathered. And so here he warns them to not be Lot's, like Lot's wife. Now when Lot was being rescued from the, you know, the destruction of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, she turned back and she turned to stone because she, she was longing for the things of, of the world, longing for the things that you know, were behind her instead of longing for what God wanted for her life. And so he warns us not to be like her, meaning in the hour of crisis, don't love the world. Don't turn back with longing or you'll be unfit for the kingdom. Remember, when the Son of Man comes, he will separate the sheep and the goats, even if they are sleeping together, even if one true believer is sleeping together and the other is not, or working side by side in the mill, one will be gathered, they will all be gathered together. And so not to be gathered to Christ at his second coming is to be left for destruction. As he says, where the corpse is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Jesus makes it clear that eternal life hangs on whether we are ready at his return. And so the danger we face as disciples of Jesus waiting for his return is stressed even more clearly in another passage. And it's just a, a similar conversation in, in Matthew where he says that they will grow cold in love. And so what we could take from all this is that we dare not bother trying to predict when he will come. He's not going to come and it, will be, it won't be difficult to miss. I, as, as, in case that's not clear yet, you're not going to miss when Jesus comes back. And the vibe when he comes is going to be the vibe that it is right now. The things that are happening right now, people are eating and drinking and marrying and being given a marriage, business as usual. And whether or, not, whether or not we will be gathered with him hangs on if you're ready for him to return. And so I want you to ask yourself that. If the lightning flashed right now, if he walked through that door to collect his people, Would he be bringing you with him? And now, (laughs) I know there's like an energy of like, come on, don't be that guy, you know. The guy standing on the other side of the road, woe to you, he's coming, repent. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. But let's seriously consider that. Would you turn back and be so caught up in the eating, the drinking, the buying, the selling, the planting, the planning for retirement, the anxiously waiting for your next vacation, the so caught up in your career. And this one's for me, the so ready for football season to start. <laughs> would you be so caught up in these things that your love for God is completely squelched? That when He returns, that you wouldn't, you'd just be caught up doing these things, or would you be ready? So Jesus is saying. That the threats to our faith aren't the blatant sinful things or persecution, which those are threats to our faith, but he's warning us not about those. He's warning us about business as usual. What is going to steal your faith is life. If you leave God out of life, this will be the source of the reckon of our souls. Think about it. If you've been coming here for a while or if you've gone to church for a good chunk of your life, what makes you forget the awesome stuff that gets preached about here on Sunday morning, or the things that you read in the Bible day to day, hopefully. Or the beautiful way that God comforted you in a a hard situation What makes you forget about those things. It's the busyness. It's the chores. It's the next meal. It's the next time the Raiders are going to be in the Super Bowl. And so, you know, I'm not going to be that guy because, you know, have you ever been given a warning like by a spouse or someone who's in charge of you or, or just something of that nature and, and given like th- this is the consequences of what's going to happen if you, you know, if you don't change this. Like, yeah, like maybe your spouse you know, expressed some anger that you, didn't, that you didn't do something right or something like that. And then they just leave it hanging. They don't tell you how to fix it. Another marriage lesson. If you want something to happen, communicate it. <laughs> but what is so beautiful about Jesus here is that he doesn't just propose this problem to us and expect us to figure it out. He tells us exactly what we need to know to make sure the things we do in life don't numb our love for him, that they don't squelch out the fervency that we have for God. And it's in the next passage... And so how do we fight for our faith? He tells us how do we fight for our faith in this next parable that he, that he gives the, the disciples and now us. Um, and parables are, are a way of Jesus, uh, he would tell like a, a figurative story to his disciples to explain a reality of the kingdom, explain how we ought to act, explain um, different things that we um, probably wouldn't grasp if he just told us straight how to do it. Um, and so In this, we're going to see a parable um, of of an unjust judge and a widow fighting for justice. And we're going to learn some lessons on how do we fight for our faith. And so right at the beginning, it tells us, now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. So we already know what it's about. We already know how we fight for our faith. Pray always and not give up. And he says, there was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him, saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming, or so she doesn't keep nagging me. Then the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you that he will satisf- he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And now, some of you might be asking, why are we reading from two different chapters? And here's why: this, the parable is bracketed with. Now, he told them on the need to pray and always not give up, and then it's and then the end. It says, "Will he find when he comes? Will he find faith on earth?" And so that tells me that it's directly linked to what he was just talking about when the se- in the second coming. So. <clears throat> You see, Jesus isn't just teaching us how to pray here. We can see that it's connected to his his sermon or his lesson on the second coming to us. And so he is teaching us to pray, but with much greater purpose, with your eternity in mind, with like, what is your prayer life? With eternity in mind, not just like, you know, obviously when we pray more, we feel better or we feel closer to God, but like with your eternity in mind, how, like, how is your prayer life right now? So he references now. Oh, I'm so sorry. So sorry, guys. So, is anyone confused (laughs) that Jesus compares God with an unjust judge? Like, I don't want to get hung up on that right now, but I just want to, like, make sure to make it clear that Jesus isn't saying that God is unjust. But in short, it's the same as, like, when Jesus compares himself to a thief in the night. It's Jesus isn't a thief. He's not going to come steal your things, but it's like you're not going to know. The point of comparison is that Jesus is not that Jesus is a thief, but that he's coming sudden and unexpected. And so here, the point of comparison is that God is not an unjust judge, but that he responds with help to those who cry to him day and night, who, those who nag, who, those who are persistent. <clears throat> in, in verse 7, Jesus draws out the lesson which he intends, to always pray and not give up. Because if you cry to God day and night, if you always pray and don't lose heart, you will not be like Lot's wife. You won't turn back in, to love the world in his return. You will not be left in judgment. You will not or you will endure in faith and love, and God will vindicate you when the Son of Man returns. Therefore, he's saying, always pray and don't lose heart. And so how do we do that? And so in parables, God, Jesus usually has a, a, a character that represents God, and usually a character that represents us or the world. And, and it's, I think it's very clear that for us, we got the widow. <laughs> we got the nagging widow. That's us today. And so we're going to take a few lessons from the widow today on how we are to pray persistently, how we are to approach God in prayer. And the first is to know your place. <laughs> and that's not like, hey, know your place. You know, it's like, like, actually, she is powerless in this situation. She has no husband, which in this culture really gives her no power and is a victim of something unjust that cannot be made right herself. And so I don't know how often myself, how often I resort to trying to fix problems, trying to conjure up different ways to, to make, make sure things happen in my life without even consulting God. And you know, I was like, kind of, I grew up and our society really um, pushes this, this narrative of, you know, pick yourself up and figure it out, pick yourself up and get it done attitude. And I think that this has made a lot of resilient people and made me a really resilient person, and that's great. But I think it's greatly kept us from being able to believe that God actually is working to actually believe that God is doing stuff or wants to work things out for you. So this mindset is something that is pretty deeply ingrained in our society. And I think we would all agree that it has contributed to our disbelief in God. And so we are ultimately powerless. Let's let's think of a list. Think of a list right now of the things that you worry about, the things that you want to change, the things that stress you out day to day. I could almost guarantee you that you don't have actual control over those things. I don't have control over the, whether the Raiders win. I don't have control over if my dog pukes in the house. I don't have control over um, I, a lot of things. <laughs> the things I do have control over are the choices I make, the things that I do, but really everything else outside of my action is out of our control, even your job, the career, the job that you get. You can apply, but the power is in the hands of the employer. You could, you can uh Look up a recipe for a food, but if you don't, if the food doesn't want to work, if the food is rotten, it's not going to work out for you. So there's a long list of things that we want to control or we want to change that are not in our control, The short list of things that are in our control. I uh, have a quote here that kind of helps us understand. He says, uh, Max Lucado is a, a Christian author. Um, he, uh, people say that he's um, a, a Christian author for uh, Christians who don't like to read basically how he he puts his books. Um, And so that's me. Just kidding. (laughs) Uh, Our prayers may be awkward. Our attempts may be feeble. But since the power of prayer is in the one who hears it and not in the one who says it, our prayers do make a difference. And so he's saying here there's some really cool mysterious thing about God, about the way that our relationship works with him, that You know We don't have the power to change these things that that always stress us out, the power to make these things happen that we want to happen. He ultimately has the power, but there's something so cool about his love for us, about how he cares for us, about the relationship that he wants to have with us, the relationship that he does have with us, that our prayers do make a difference. But we must understand that we don't have the power here. We don't have power here, especially in comparison to God. But let's think about that a little deeper. It's not just like, know your place and sit down and shut up. It's like, God has the power. Like, the God that loves you, the God that cares for you, the God that chose you, like, has the power to change things. The God that chose you has the power to make things happen in your life that you want to make happen. How does that feel? Pretty cool. It's really good. (laughs) So, I have hope the Raiders will win the Super Bowl someday. (laughs) But, Not to be crass, but let us let that stop and sink in. Like, God is so awesome. He wants good things. He wants the things that stress you out to be set to justice. He wants the things in your life that are causing you trouble. He wants to come in and take control of those things. It's awesome. And the next thing that we see, as it notes that she pesters him, The, the, the judge gave in to her persistent coming is to make a habit of it. Make a habit of praying. She kept coming to him. She gave in, he gave into her persistence. And we ought to read this and not think that we can wear him out, that we can wear God out, but that we have a need to do it continually. For some reason, in our DNA ingrained in us, we must come to God continually. And there are so many ways to make this a habit, and I can get hung up on teaching you guys, and I'm going to teach you guys some, some ways that I do it. Um, but... I really just highly encourage you to read some Max Lucado because he's the Christian writer for Christians who don't like to read. Um, Read uh, people like John Piper. Read people that um, can teach you rhythms of life of prayer because different things work for different people. But like the quote said from earlier, the power isn't in our words, so the power isn't in how we do it or when we do it, but it's in the hands of him who does it. And so come to the one who's going to do it. He's listening. But I find it, to be most important, to, to develop the habit. And one of the biggest things in developing a habit of prayer is to decide when, what, and where. If I just say, if, I, if you guys leave today from the sermon and just say, I need to pray more, it's not going to happen. Just like the days of Lot and the days of Noah, you're going to go on eating and drinking and marrying and buying things. And so we must like, make a decision of when I'm going to pray, what I'm going to pray, And where, And so it's just super important, guys, that we make a habit of it. Obviously, like from the widow, she came persistently, and not because we want to, because we have the ability to wear God down, but because there is something about us that requires that we come to God continually. And the next lesson from the widow, which gets us into the what, is to know what to pray. Now, for her, it was pretty obvious. Some jagaloon was messing with her, and she needed justice in her life. And so the only person that had power to make this right was the judge. The person that had the power to, to make you know, you know, fix this problem that she has going on in her life was the judge. But how do we know what to cry out? Sometimes it's obvious and right in our faces, and I could guarantee you right now, after a five-minute conversation with every one of you, there would be something I could find out that we need to pray about. But let's flesh it out. Now, there are two different ways that God can reveal things to us. Now there's things called general general revelation, which is things that God reveals to all people, things that are just things that are laid out clear as de- clear as day, things that we should always be um, like things that are that are always true about God, always true that we should pray for our lives or for the people around us. And then there's special revelations, which are like things that we all individually or even communally experience, things that are happening right now, like like if you're going through struggles or if or if your kids acting up or something of along those lines. And so. General revelation is done greatly and mostly through Scripture. Now, if you're reading Scripture and not praying as you read to unite your heart with the truths that God is revealing to you, maybe you're just learning more. Like, really, you're just like adding some knowledge up here, maybe. And so how do we do that? How do we approach God's Word, approach the general revelation of what God has revealed to all people, and pray through that? And so here at True Life, we like to teach a rhythm. Um, We call it ACTS, and it it is a fun acrostic. It stands for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. And this is just a way for you to pray through Scripture. And so adoration, you come to the the Word, and you read it, and the adoration part is, what do you see here that makes you adore God, or worship God, or even bow in reverence toward God, or even fear God? Like, what are the things about God that cause a reaction from you? And so you pray, God, I, I... I, we're reading about God's love, and so God, thank you, or, or God, God, I love your, your love. I love to see your love. Um, I, I adore these things about you. And the next thing is confession. As we're reading to reveal God's character to us, we're probably being convicted, or we should be being convicted about things that we are not emulating in our own lives of what God is trying to tell us of how we're supposed to be or how, how we ought to act. And so, God, I praise you and love you and adore you. Next I confess that I have not been acting in this way of loving my neighbor. The next thing is thanksgiving. And so God, thank you that you have revealed this to me. God, thank you that you are a loving God. Thank you that I can come to you and, and, and you graciously and mercifully um, teach me to walk in your ways. And then supplication. How do I pray this for what's going on around my life? Supplication is, is to pray for like the external, for the external things. And so if I'm praying for God's love to be revealed in my life, I'm praying that I, I, I be able to emulate God's love to the people around me or that the people around me may be able to emulate God's love more. And so this is just one way, like I said earlier, there are many different things like this um, that, that I'm sure many of you know that um, do, do the same effect and different things work for different people. But this is what you know we kind of teach, teach here um, and how to start praying through Scripture. And I think when you start moving through something like this, it will eventually become your own rhythm. Eventually the word might change to facts or, or something else. I don't know. You'll come up with something fun. Um, that's how we pray through Scripture. We come to His word. We adore Him. We confess how we haven't emulated this. We thank Him for being gracious and loving and teaching us these things. And then we pray for it to happen around us. And so that's general revelation. Praying through Scripture. Special revelations. Oh, we're not there yet. Are Things that we experience in our individual lives or things that are going on around us, even communally, things that are happening, what's going on in the world. And so if you can't think of anything to think about, I'll give you a list. Right now, different injustices in the world or injustices that you're experiencing or those around you that are experiencing. Afghanistan. New Orleans. Hurricane Ida cleaning up. They still don't have power, to my knowledge. The pandemic. It's hurt a lot of us. Or, if you, I mean, if you're a believer this morning, the 6,000 plus unreached people groups in the world that haven't heard Jesus' name. It's a pretty good list. <laughs> we can pray about those things if you don't have anything. <laughs> but this goes right back into getting caught up in the day-to-day. The people in Lot's day were too busy with what was going on in their lives to see what was wrong with the world around them, to see what was wrong with how even they were living or how the people around them were living. And then the day came. Let's not let this be us. There's so much, so much going on in the world today that only God has the power to change. Whew, sorry. <clears throat> Don't stop praying. The fourth lesson from the widow is that nothing happens without prayer. If we trace to the Old Testament when um, Abraham in the, it references to the days of Lot and that's, that's when Sodom and Gomorrah was so wicked that God destroyed them, um, God was just going to destroy them, and, and Abraham pleaded with him that he saved the righteous people, and that's why Lot was saved is because Abraham pleaded with God that he saved. It, he goes through a whole, like, if there's 50, save it. If there's 35, whatever, like he goes through a whole number. And that, the reason Lot was saved from Sodom and Gomorrah is because Abraham pleaded on behalf of him. <clears throat> or, or Moses, when, when uh, in, in the Old Testament, Moses was the leader of the Israelites. He w- you know, went to God on behalf of them and communicated the word of God to them. And God was so mad that the Israelites had turned away from him and were worshiping false idols. He was gonna do the same. He was gonna wipe them out. And Moses pleaded with him pleaded with God, don't, and God didn't. Or how many times, if, you, if you've read anything out of the gospel, do you see Jesus healing people or Jesus making new things happen or bringing people to life? It did not happen without communication with his Father in heaven. So prayer works, and it's the only thing that does work. Now, God is all-knowing, he knows what's going on in our lives. But there's something, again, super cool and mysterious and supernatural about our relationship with him and his care for us, that when we come to him with things, things happen. And so know that nothing happens without prayer. And So the end of our passage, it says, the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And so the last thing is, you know, we know that we don't have the power in and of ourselves. So our prayers in and of themselves, our words are not what's making the power happen, but it's God who's making the things happen. And this supernatural relationship that we have with him that can make things happen, is who is fighting for us, is our next question. Who's fighting for you? Who's fighting for your faith? And so we, we kind of talked about this earlier, how you know, Jesus uses this uh, rhetorical device of, of comparing, you know, using the greater or lesser, and so we know God's not an unjust judge. So if the lesser is true, how much more true is the greater, is what he's saying, so if a wicked judge will restore justice to a lady he doesn't even know or have any respect for or care about, how much more will loving God, who knows us answer our prayers? So the widow comes to the unjust judge and pleads for help, nags him, annoys him for help. She's experiencing this injustice and wants him to make it right. And that's us, the widow. Weak, poor, no one to speak up for us. And her only hope for help is the judge. He's the only person that has the power to make right what's going on in her life, the injustice that she's experiencing. So she comes over and over and over until he finally gives in. Until he gives her the help she needs so that she doesn't have to deal with whatever injustice she's dealing with anymore. But the point of the parable is not that if you can wear down an unjust human judge, then you can wear down God. The parable is, that would contradict contradict when Jesus says stuff like, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God wants to do these things for you. He has respect for you. He has a love for you. And so the most important thing to me in this parable is that it shows everything hangs on God being different from the judge. Jesus tells us two things about the unjust judge. In verse two, he says, he neither feared God or respected people. So the two obstacles that the judge experiences to not being able to help this woman, but eventually she nags him. But his two obstacles are that he doesn't fear God or respect people. So in other words, these two marks of the judge are the exact opposite things about God. So obstacle one is that judge, the judge does not fear God. This means that the fear of God would prompt the judge to help a needy window, widow. If he was, had the fear of God, he would just do it. And if the fear of God would prompt a judge to help a needy widow, then God is not like the unjust judge, but is the kind of God whose heart is inclined towards his people, who, who, because he is God. <laughs> God himself is merciful to all who call upon him. Therefore, if a judge who has no fear of God can be swayed by persistent petitions, how much more certain can we be that the God that chose us and that loves us will help those who cry out to him day and night? So the first obstacle is that the judge has no fear of God. And the second is that the judge does not respect people. He has no regard for people, as it says in another translation. The judge did not know the widow, and he had no emotional regard for her. And the point made clear is that the judge is not inclined in any way to the widow. So does this mean that God does not have any regard for us? No. Is he indifferent about our needs? No. He says it clearly in verse 7. Will not God grant justice to his elect to cry out to him day and night? Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, then who could be against us? God is for you. God respects you. God has regard for you. So Jesus is saying, if an unjust judge can be moved by persistence to make the right situation of a stranger he has no respect for, no feelings toward, how much more will God swiftly grant us justice in our lives? God is merciful and just, and gracious, and loves you, and you guys online too. And he chose you. This parable is not telling us that God is this impersonal, non-caring, power-hungry force or guy who we need to try and wear down to make things happen in our life in order to see justice. It's telling us that he's the complete opposite of that. Jesus is saying that God wants to hear your needs. He wants you to cry out to him, raw, uninhibited, as real as the pain you're experiencing right now. That's what he wants to hear. So what are you holding back? Why are we holding back? What do you need to be crying out to God? What in your life is is weighing you down? God wants to restore you. He wants to restore the things in your life. He wants you to experience true joy, He wants you to experience freedom, contentment, eternal life. And so don't let the next car problem distract you from these eternal realities. Cry out to him who wants to hear about your car problems. Don't let your next vacation take up all of your joy and hope. Let that be your source of hope. Thank him for allowing you to to experience cool things like that. Don't let your career swallow up your true purpose and calling here on earth. Ask God to show you where he has commissioned you and gifted you and empowered you to carry out his plans in your workplace, in your families, in the communities that you live in. Include God in your daily life and you'll be found as his children. Shun him out of your life. I think we can fill in the blank. And so this parable is meant to be an urge for us to pray unceasingly until he comes back. He asks, when the son of man comes will he find faith on earth he means when he comes back will he find faithful men and women and children who have persisted in prayer or have lost heart and given up so while studying this a few nights ago i changed my question for olivia from how's your heart to are you ready for a second coming (laughs) it's a little crass but that's what we're really asking Are our hearts in a a state to where we are ready for God's return? Are we caught up in the day-to-day? It is clear to me that our mind being set on eternal things, our faith, this fervent fervent pursuit of God, and our persistence in prayer are one and the same. You can't separate them. You see, persistent prayer is not how we earn our place in his book but it's how we should be characterized. It's how he will find us. It's how it'll be our mark, is is our fervent prayers until he returns. John Piper, who's a renowned pastor and author, um, said it this way. And John Piper's kind of like my C.S. Lewis for Caleb. (laughs) He says, Faith is the furnace of our lives. The fuel is the grace of God, and the divinely appointed shovel for feeding the burner is prayer. So if you hold things back, if you don't go to him with the things that you are struggling that you want to control, the first will go cold. If you continue to distract yourself with the little things, if you, the minutia of the day-to-day, the business as usual, and don't bring your own sorrows and hurts and frustrations to your dad in heaven, who loves you, if you don't bring those things to him, you will grow cold and hit to his love and the things that he has set out for you. So we're going to take communion here in a second. but there's, there's, And as, we, as, as I talk about communion, as the worship band comes up, there's one more comparison in this parable that is different. You see, we are the widow. That's who our person is, how we're supposed to act, as, you know, according to this parable. But we're not widows. You know, uh, Jesus regularly refers to his people, the church, as the bride of him. And so as God's people, Jesus is our husband. Our husband is not dead and gone. We have a husband. We have someone to advocate for us. We have, we're not estranged and left alone, and that's why, why we take communion. We're celebrating Jesus' sac- secured victory for us on the cross. And so this swift justice that's spoken about has already been done for you. His saving work on the cross has sealed our place in the end when he returns again. When he returns, the culmination of his kingdom, it means good riddance, all the bad things that we want to control, all the stresses that we have, all the injustices that the world, that the world is experiencing and that we experience. So that means good riddance, division, good riddance, wars, good riddance, famine, good riddance, drama, death, sickness, Mondays. All injustice and hello, complete and unhindered joy in the face of the God that loves you more than you can comprehend. Despite all the ways that we've spit in his face, despite all the ways that we've lived against him, despite all the ways that we've shook our fists at him, blaming him for these things. He died for you. He died and won this victory for you. He has gained this swift justice for you already. And that's why we take communion. And so we must not lose heart and stop praying because that is the mark of the true believer who endured to the end. Secondly, and more positively, we should not grow weary in prayer because God is not like the unjust judge, but loves us and works for the good of all of you. So I'll end with this quote, but I'll be in the back. For prayer for healing or anything that is going on in uh, your guys' lives. And the communion cups might be a little confusing. There's two layers to peel off. you peel off the top, eat the cookie. it's really good. <laughs> peel off the bottom, drink the juice. But Martin Luther, who is the great reformer, the reason that the church is you know formed the way it has today in great in great part to him. He said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And so come to him, persistently. Pray with me. Father God, I just want to thank you so much for my brothers and sisters here this morning. But more so, I want to thank you for your word and revealing to us the truth of your love. For us, the truth of your power the truth that you have chosen us and are granting swift justice for us and have granted swift justice for us. And so God, as we take communion, as we celebrate these realities, I pray that the word that we have come to today is tattooed on our hearts and I pray that um, we get to go from here and not let the business as usual squelch our love for you, squelch our fervency for you, God. God, we love you so much and we thank you for your sacrifice and for your loving kindness to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.